All right, so we're gonna go ahead and get started. We're gonna do like we do every week. We'll start with a review. I like to do that because I would like you all to at least memorize an outline in your mind of the highlights of the chapters. And that way, if you want to tell somebody about something, it's easier to remember an overview of the book to go, oh, that was in that second chapter. I remember that's where that was covered. Um, or if you have great memory, you are free to just memorize all the verses. But I don't have one of those. So, <laughs> so first John, what do you remember about chapter one? What's the highlights? One of the important things was that we did a definition that happened at the end of the chapter, or it was the word of life. It was at the end of that first verse, if I'm not mistaken, right? And that that was Jesus was, he was the word and he was light. But the most important thing he emphasized was he was at the beginning of what? The beginning of creation. He was at the beginning of creation. And so that becomes important later when we make these parallel comparisons to what went on in the false teaching that was going on. Um, in that Jesus brought the way to have eternal life through fellowship with God. So those are also important terms that will be throughout the rest of this book. So fellowship with God, and that is eternal life. You do not separate those two things. He emphasized over and over with his word choices that the apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus's physical resurrection and that believers should avoid sin, but that they have sin. So it got back and forth with some of the way those verses were worded. And again, when we talked about what the false teachers were bringing, we understood more why he was wording it the way that he was. Then we started in chapter two, what do you say the highlights of what we did go through? We only went through the first six verses last week because we spent some time on some different ideas that were brought forward. What do you remember highlights from last week being? Propitiation. We spent quite a bit of time on what propitiation was, that Jesus is our propitiation. So I would say if you want to talk about propitiation, you would turn to 1 John chapter 2. Towards the end of what we discussed, we talked about um, John saying that we needed to keep his commandments. So we spent time on what did his commandments mean so that we wouldn't be brought into any kind of false teaching, that that would mean going back under the law in any sense of the word. But you can see how that can be confusing to someone who, when they see those words, assume that means all of the commandments and they would be driven back to the law. All right, the very last thing that we did, and I think it's important because this is what John is contending with, was to understand the basic tenets of Gnosticism. Do you remember the basic five, well, four to five tenets that we had of Gnosticism? And we have slides to bring up here for you. Uh, on the left would be those tenets that we talked about. To the right, were the refutations that we discussed last week. So between chapter one and the first six verses of chapter two, we talked about what the tenet was and where it was being refuted. Next week, I'll have a slide that will just have an overview of the tenets because I want that to be what you memorize, what you understand on your own. So the first tenet of Gnosticism was that Knowledge was superior to what? 
to character or virtue. That's the first false teaching of Gnosticism. The second one that we highlighted is there are special people out there. And if you're one of the special, then you can alone interpret things that don't make sense. So you need to be a special person. That would be number two for finding words for memory. What was the third one? Exactly. God could not have possibly created matter because in matter is the world and in the world is sin. And so they have to completely separate them. And they came up with this idea that, well, then God couldn't have possibly created it. If you think about it at the core of that is what a lot of people tend to run to. If you discuss the gospel or you talk about God with them, they say, well, I can't believe a God in who would allow fill in the blank. So that's what this really is at the high level. That's where that conversation started, but that's where it goes to high level. Can't be a God if I see these things. Well, if there is a God, he couldn't have possibly created. So it's in their philosophical logic that they went down that path. What was the fourth thing? Deity couldn't exist in flesh. And that ties back to what they discussed with their third point but it has a conclusion that we need to identify as Christians. And it would have been what was being taught in that church that was false that John's contending with. And out of that is another extension we talked about that could be the fifth, which was there's no resurrection. So they start with three, they extend to four, and then they can have a conclusion of five. Right, Because if you're spiritually wonderful in this new state, why could you be trapped back in a physical body? Because physical body is made up of matter and matter is sin. And so now we're back to that circular argument. They didn't, they, they just separated it. They were separate beings. So their spiritual was a-okay. It was just fine. And they didn't have any real need to worry about their flesh because they were separate. So they had already separated it in their minds. So, all right. So that was where we dealt with the, the views of the Gnostics. Again, there's a ton of other stuff out there. It, it morphed over the years. It became other things. Uh, it included other things. And it moved to different areas, right? Like false teaching does. But these are the tenets of it. And when you understand what they're saying, then you see it when it pops up in our own culture. When you see people embracing these same ideas in our culture. So we'll go to 1 John now. And we're going to go back to chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 7. And we're going to go through 11. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John had said that these believers who were, were the ones who do, does not keep his commandments is a liar. That's how he had finished and then he continues in that explanation with these verses. So in verse 7, what does John say next? He starts with, 
Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. So what term does John use to clarify his audience? He says, beloved, who are the beloved? Those would be believers, okay? So John writes what to these believers? It's an old commandment, which you've heard from the beginning. So how had they heard this old commandment? And he says, the old commandment is the word which you have heard. So it would be in the Old Testament. It would be words they'd already studied and they had already understood. And we'll look at just a few. There would be a lot more if we were doing a complete review, but we're just going to look at two. We're going to do Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. So Deuteronomy 6, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. We hear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. We also find in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we talked about that last week. We talked about it in chapter one. We're going to talk about it again this week. So back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 8. What does John add to this? He says, on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. So this commandment was true for who? For him, the him is Jesus and in the true believers. Why is this command true for both? He says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Again, doesn't it seem odd some of his word choices? He is continually contending with the false teaching that has seeped into these churches. So the word light is capitalized, which tells us this is not a generic reference to light, but it's speaking about a person. So who is the true light? That person is Jesus. He is the one referred to as the true light. How does the true light shine? So first, it shines because Jesus came into the world, right? And he's the light that shines. But secondly, it shines as a person becomes a believer and we have the Holy Spirit within us. We become another point of light in the world. The best way that I can have you picture that, have any of you been to a candlelight service? Right? One light starts and then it gets shared and it's just amazing. The room just becomes illuminated with these little tiny lights. And it used to be more fascinating when they were real candles. Now we have the little electronic ones. <laughs> but that's the picture of it. So that's what it looks like to have the light. So Jesus is the original light. He brought the light. He shares the light through the Holy Spirit in us. That's the light shining in the world. In verse nine, what is one way to know if someone is not in the light? If he hates his brother. So John says there are those who say they are in the light, but they hate their brother and they're in the darkness. Who is the brother in this context that we talked about? 
and would be a fellow believer, somebody else declaring to be a believer. So a believer can't be in the light of Jesus and still hate other believers. These two things cannot coexist, according to John. Again, there would be an indication that hatred would have been something demonstrated by these false teachers, probably hatred towards John or the apostles or anybody who disagreed with them. So John's making a point that this character flaw of hatred would be an indication there's no light. In verse 10, what is the comparison to this hate? He says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. So the demonstration of love from one believer to another is a confirmation that they are in the light. And who is that confirmation supposed to be for? Is it for everybody else to see and make a judgment about you? It's for you to know about you and for you to have the confirmation that you are in the light when you can love a fellow believer who may not be all that lovable. That's a confirmation that the spirit is working within you. If you struggle with that, you need to take that back to the Lord. John talks about this love also in his gospel. And I'll just read two verses from John chapter 13. We'll do verses 34 and 35. So John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In that context, John makes it clear, it should be evident when you love another, because others should be able to see that. So back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. When a believer loves another believer, what is also true? There is no cause for stumbling in him. So the demonstration of love for a brother in Christ would be to avoid anything that could cause another believer to stumble. How would one believer stumble another believer? Well, there could be many ways that this could be, that this could be true. However, John is specifically dealing with the false teaching in the church. So those who would cause believers to move away from the true gospel and away from the apostles' clear teaching of the gospel and call them to walk away from sin. That's what the gospel, that's what the apostles were saying. For those that would declare that that wasn't true, John says that's stumbling believers. So false teaching is a way to stumble believers. Not all believers have the ability and the discernment to identify false teaching so they can fall prey to it. That's stumbling a believer. That's why John is so strongly denouncing these elements that would be seen in the false teachers. Yes, it's true for believer to believer, but the most important thing that John was concerned about was putting these standards before those who declared to be teachers. So verse 11, what separation does John say can be made about whether someone is a believer? He says, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and he walks in the darkness and he does not know where he's going because of the, dark the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
So when someone is claiming to be a believer, but harbors hatred to another believer, John says that person is in the darkness. What was the conclusion of what darkness was from our study of 1 John chapter 1? And we looked at it specifically in verse 5. So that would have been our first week together. We came to the conclusion that the darkness was the dominion of who? It's the dominion of Satan, and it is where sin must be forgiven. So if you're in the dominion of Satan and your sin must be forgiven, you would be an unbeliever. So John says unbelievers will be demonstrated by their hatred towards what, they, what would be called a brother. So they're claiming to be something that they are not. Remember, ladies, it's really easy to throw a word out and to confuse other people because they don't know how you define your word and you don't know how they define their word. In other words, there can be a conversation you have with somebody and you say that you believe God is sovereign and they say, yes, I believe God is sovereign. And you guys walk along your way and go have lunch and everybody thinks they're on the same page. But if you stop to say, well, what do you say that sovereign is? What do you believe that it represents? And you talk about that and then you say what you believe it is, you may find out they're using that word in a very different way than you are. So these people are claiming to be believers and John is helping say there are some discernment issues you need to have. So if you see somebody claiming to be a believer, a brother in the Lord, and yet they demonstrate hatred, you need to be aware that you might be talking to somebody who is not a believer and they are walking in darkness. So the person who walks in the darkness is walking in the dominion of Satan. What does it mean to walk in this regard? To live it out each moment of your life. That's what the walk means. It's, a, it's another way to describe living out your life or walking daily in your life. So when one walks in the darkness, what is true about that walk? He doesn't know where he's going. Like a blind person right? How, he does not know where he's going and he walks through this life and he does not know where he is going in this life. And he doesn't know where he's going in his eternal life. So the darkness has done what to this person? It has blinded his eyes. So this person is blind to what the truth is. With blind eyes, they don't even see the darkness they're in. Right? A blind person a real blind person, they have no ability to see. They don't know when the lights are on outside or when it's dark outside. They see neither. So it's not just that they don't see the light. They're incapable of knowing and seeing that they're in the darkness. That's a sad place for a human being to be. That's why the light was brought to the world. That's why we share the light. So the false teachers often begin, it would appear, by disparaging others. So when others are teaching contrary to what the false teachers are advocating, they will often attack not just the teaching, but the person doing the teaching. And you see it all the time. They go after the person. And not just in politics. This goes on in the church as well. We need to be about what does the word say? We need to stay focused on what does the word say? Do not attack a person. You can identify someone that you might think has a problem with staying in the truth of scripture. That would be fine, but be really careful. 
Be about what you're for. Talk about what the scriptures say. Make that your gold standard. So John is saying this one element of the current and by the way, future teachers in the church should be scrutinized. If they demonstrate hatred to other believers, they should not be followed because the darkness has blinded their eyes. This would be a refutation of the false teaching, the false teachers teaching someone that they can claim to know God and yet separate their character or their actions from fellowship with God. So that's one of the tenets that we talked about with Gnosticism, right? The number one thing, knowing would be more important than virtue. And John says that is not a true statement. You cannot hate, which is a character defect, basically, and claim to be in fellowship with God. Mutually exclusive things. So now we move into 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to do verses 12 through 14. He says, I am writing you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. The evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So in verse 12, how does John address the believer next? He says, I'm writing you little children, all right? Who are the little children? They're the believers. So believers are as little children of God because of what? Because your sins have been forgiven. That's how you are a child of God. Because your sins have been forgiven. So when our sins are forgiven, we are children of God. Why have our sins been forgiven? According to that verse. For his name's sake. All right, let's talk about that. What is a namesake in our culture? When would we say, oh, that's, that's my namesake. What are we saying? They were named after me. That's my namesake. So my name was passed on to that person. So the name is then carried on to a next generation. That's why we have, you know, Sam Sr. and Jr. and three and four, right? The namesake, it was passed on to the next generation. Jesus Christ died so our sins could be forgiven. We are now his namesake. It's being passed on generation to generation. Our sins were forgiven because of his namesake. In verse 13, what does John address next? He says, I'm writing you fathers because you, you know him who has been from the beginning. So first he says, I'm writing you. So he's giving the, one of the reasons he's writing this. Some say letter, but it didn't really have an introduction or a conclusion like other letters have. So it may have been a sermon, may have been something that was just recorded that he was teaching, but we can call it a letter because it's a letter to us. It's written for us. Why does John say he addresses the fathers? He says, because you know him who has been from the beginning. So who is the him? Jesus. We know that because the pronoun reference is back to the true light. And the true light is our namesake. 
So Jesus is described how? Who was from the beginning? John began the letter with this reference to the beginning, way back in chapter 1, verse 1. This is a focus back to the creation and would be another moment for John to refute the false teaching saying that Jesus was not the creator of the world. You find it interesting that every time we try to unpack what seems like circular, that he's already said it, he's always going back to what we can see the tenets of Gnosticism to be. So how does John address the believers next? As I'm writing you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Who's the evil one? Always a reference to Satan. So believers have their sins forgiven and know that the creator and inactions have overcome the evil one. Believers have in the ultimate sense overcome evil because we belong to Jesus and we have eternal life. The Gnostics were always questioning the believers knowledge to make them doubt they had all the answers they needed. Isn't that exactly how false teaching works? If they can get you to doubt what you've been told, you might listen. Isn't that exactly what we found back in the garden? Making the woman doubt what she knew to be true. That was the introduction that the enemy used. He doesn't do anything new. He might repackage it, but he really doesn't do anything new. What is the purpose John wrote to the believers as the children? He says, I'm writing to you children because you know the father. So he's back to reminding them what they know. You know him. You have it. You know the father. We're his children because we truly know the father. We have fellowship with the father. We know that. And he doesn't want any false teacher to put that in doubt. Verse 14, what is the purpose John wrote to the believers as fathers? He says, I've written you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. You think John wants to make that point clear? <laughs> what is the purpose John wrote to the believers as young men? He says, I've written to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. So what two elements of young men does John address here that was not mentioned before when he addressed the young, he called them young men. He says, you're strong and the word of God abides in you. Very strange introduction of calling out fathers or young men or children. All of these are reference to the believers. And we don't know exactly what specific teaching the Gnostics might have been utilizing that John is contending with by calling the believers by these titles. It's lost to us for whatever, but we know John does not stop dealing with the false teaching of these folks. And so there had to be something that he's addressing in that. In verse, in verse 14, John is imitating what can be referred to as Hebrew um, parallelism. He repeats in verses 12 and in 13, but with slight differences. 
And again, if we knew more details of the specific teaching that would have been going on in that day, we would probably be able to address exactly what those subtle differences were addressing, but we don't have an indication of that. We can only go backwards and say, because he's addressing it this way and it doesn't quite make sense, there must be something he was addressing. And there's no problem with us doing that. There's nothing that he declared to the fathers or to the young men or to the children that would not be true for all believers. So the false teachers may have been teaching concepts to these Christians to feel weak or unable to do good. John tells them repeatedly, they have all they need in strength because the word of God abides in them. And the conclusion is that they have already overcome the evil one. So those would be something we can assume the false teachers in some way had tried to introduce to the believers. And John's contending with that. John insists believers had true knowledge of God in that they knew what it was for them to have their sins forgiven and have fellowship with the eternal one, which allows them to be like zealous young men who had defeated the satanic assaults. So he's talking to them as if they already have. He's encouraging them to continue in what they already have. John has not wavered in his discussion of what it means to truly know God. Know God. That's the challenge. That's what the believers are being challenged with. They don't truly know God yet. They need something else. And John's like, no, you don't. You got all you need. You got it all. We'll see that carried out in John First John chapter two, we're going to do verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So what is the contrast that John gives? He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. That seems pretty strong, doesn't it? Pretty strong language. In verse 15, what does John caution the believers about in regards to that? He says, then do not love the world, nor the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a pretty dramatic statement. What John is making clear is that these are two mutually exclusive world views. You can't do both at the same time. If you do love the world, then what is the conclusion? The Father is not in him. So following John's narrative, these men would not know the father and they would be unbelievers. Verse 16, how does John help define what he is referring to? He says, for that that is in the world, and he says what about it? He calls it the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but from the world. 
So you see how it might have been difficult to just maybe decide what John might have been talking about when he used this generic term world. So he says, you know what, I'm going to make sure I'm defining for you what I mean when I say it's of the world. So he lists the three things as matters of the world. He starts with the lust of the flesh. What does that mean? Instead of leaving it generic, let's talk about what that means. What are ways when we say somebody has the lust of the flesh, we're talking about things that would be gratifications to our fleshly desires. Could be food or drink, um, maybe more comfortable clothes, things that would be the physical touch, smells, perfumes, hearing, like nature and music, all the things that stimulate the brain or direct our emotions, could be some form of activity, could be some drugs, could be all kinds of things. Anything that has an impact on the physical body. Remember, the focus is that you would love that more than God. Not that you can't have any of those things, but what is in control, that's the difference. What about the lust of the eyes? It's a craving for what is seen, for the outward appearance of things. It is the desire of the superficial, often for what others have. That would be when the direction of the eyes can take over. The third one, he said, the boastful pride of life. That would be bragging about what we already have or what we do, maybe our job or our hobbies or our sports or education or our achievements or even our families. All of this is if this becomes in conflict with the fellowship with God. That's when it becomes the issue. That's what John is saying. Those two things, if you love the one and disregard the other, if you love any of these things to the point where you disregard God, that's a problem. That might be an indication that you're loving the world more than you're loving the Father. The eternal focus with the fellowship that brings eternal life. Don't confuse them, John says. And it would appear that that's exactly what the false teachers were bringing in and causing confusion of. We have it everywhere in the church today as well. We do not want to be confused by those things. The two clarifiers used were lust of and boastful. So when the driving force is lust, the flesh is no longer able to be controlled. It controls us. When we are boastful, instead of being grateful for the gifts of this life, this is not from God. That is not what he would want from us. Keep in mind that the writer is teaching against Gnosticism. And what point is he specifically dealing with here? If you remember the points of Gnosticism, what are they letting go? Their character, their virtue is not important. So they would teach that their knowledge of such things is superior. And John is saying virtue is superior. And he's defining what virtue is for them. This is virtue. Following the world is not virtue. Following God, that's what the most important thing is. That's what you demonstrate in your character to show you know the Father. You don't need superficial knowledge and then turn around and do whatever in your flesh. Those two things can't coexist. 
You see, he's really walking a tightrope, trying to say what it is to be a believer and what it is to identify those that are not. How to identify when you're being slipping back into something that you shouldn't be going into. That's not a demonstration of a walk with the Father. It is falling into something that could be the world. Does that mean you can fall then out of grace with the Father? No, that is not what he's teaching here, and that's not what we would be teaching here. Verse 17, what is the outcome of each worldview? He says, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's the comfort that John wants to bring to these believers. So what does it mean the world and all its lusts are passing away? What do we mean when we say something is passing away? It's coming to an end. It's not there yet, because we're still in it. Today, we're still in it. But it's coming to an end. We can see it's getting closer to when it will go away. None of the things of the world, of the world or the fleshly indulgences will be remembered in that future. They will cease to exist. They will not be of importance. Not for us or anybody else. So now we have the great comparison. He says, but the one who does the will of God does what? Lives forever. He's identifying the difference between being a believer and an unbeliever. So the comparison is one who follows the path of the world or the will of God. These two things are always in contrast and conflict. They can never be the same or coexist. Only doing the will of God leads to eternal life. So the indication would be, I know what the will of God is for me, and then I don't do it. I'm not doing something that's going to have eternal consequence. I need to follow what the Lord has directed me to do and to do his will. Even as a believer, if I do the things of the world, there's no credit for that long term. As an unbeliever, following the things of the world is just what I'm going to do naturally because I do not know the Father. Does that make sense on what he's really trying? He's like to know the Father. The Gnostics were all about, that's what the word means, right? Knowledge. So that's the most important thing that John is trying to drive home all the time. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Knowledge of what? He says, you need to know the Father. Not knowing the Father leads to all of this other stuff. You can know about all these other things. You can know about the world. You can know. That doesn't lead you to know the Father. And you don't get to the Father by more knowledge of those things. That was the false teaching. So back to John, 1 John chapter 2, we'll do verses 18 through 25. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is in the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. 
The one who confesses the son has the father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the son and the father. This is the promise which he himself made to us. Eternal life. So verse 18, what does John address next? He says, children, who are the children? It's another reference to the believers. John concludes, it is what? It's the last hour. So what does it mean it's the last hour? And would be coming. This would have been some time that had been described to these believers in a previous teaching or discussion. He doesn't spell it out here. And he references several times, I have told you, you have heard. This is an audience he knew had already gotten good instruction. So he references that this is the last hour. John helps to define. He, just, he helps to define this how. He says, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming. So these believers had already heard that the Antichrist would be coming. That's what he says here. You've already heard this. You're aware that this is going to happen. This was not new information to these believers. So he doesn't spend a lot of time defining everything. They already have had their chance to have this teaching. What else does John say about this topic? He goes, even now many Antichrists have appeared. This appears to be the new information John is bringing to the attention of these believers. So now, John refers to many Antichrists in the plural. Since the Antichrists are appearing, what is John's conclusion? For this we know it is the last hour. John helped define what this Antichrist is, how? He says if they deny Christ. I'm going to take you to something we're going to study later in this same book, but it gives us clarification here. So we can refer when we get there back to here that he had done that reference. So in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, we read, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. In his next letter, so 2 John verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. You think John wants to make it perfectly clear what it is that the false teachers will come with? Yes. Anybody who denies the son and denies that the son came in the flesh. That person is considered an antichrist. They are anti to Christ. Back in 1 John chapter 4, John first describes that spirit that does not confess Jesus as not from God, and that spirit is the antichrist. In chapter 2, 7, he described the men who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh as deceivers, and these deceivers are also considered antichrists. So back to 1 John chapter 2, which is the one we're making our way through. Verse 19. After defining the terms, how does John continue? He says, they, 
went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. Hmm. Okay, let's unpack that. Who are the they? It's the Antichrist. It's the false teachers. And we know that because it refers directly back to that verse 17. And since I read you other verses... Before I read you verse 18, I want you to refer back to 17 for your clarifier that it's the Antichrist. The, the many Antichrists did what? They went out from us. Who would be the us? Some group that John had been a part of, right? John has used the pronoun we in verse 18, and now he switches to us. So what subset of believers maybe had John been a part of? Back at the beginning of this book, remember in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he says what was from the beginning, what we heard, what we had seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So there was a we reference to the group of the apostles that had walked on the earth, so John is part of the apostles of the first century church who were the eyewitnesses to all the events that they bring to the world. There were some who had come to this group of apostles for some reason, probably to be discipled or to be taught by them. So these men had come and joined themselves for whatever reason. We're not, this one is just, we're, we're with our logic coming to what could be but it is not according to the scripture. So it could be that it's a different group that John's talking about. But the fact that he referenced the we's at the beginning, and he's talking about these people had joined themselves to a group and then left the group would give us reason to believe that it may have been the apostles or leaders of the early church that these folks had associated with. How does John continue? But they were not really of us. So they were not really part of the apostles sent out to the world. If they had been believers, what would they have done? They would have stayed with us. They would have remained with us. And maybe not in a physical sense, but in the teaching sense. They would have remained believing and teaching what we teach. Instead, they have gone off on their own. They've not remained with us. They had separated from the true apostles of the church. And what did the many antichrists do? They went out. So they left the apostles. They left the church. When they renounced the true apostles, what was the result? So that it would be shown they are not of us. So John is not bemoaning the fact that they left other than because we know they left, because they didn't remain, we know what's true about them. They were never part of this. They did not have the spirit. They were not of us. And we know that because of what they did. Ultimately, they left. That way we know they were not part of us. In the moment that they pretended to be part of them, there was no anything that, that could be seen that would separate that for John or anybody else. They didn't know until the people went out and started teaching, very specifically teaching, Jesus was not the son of God. Jesus was not what the gospel declared him to be. That was when the light bulb went on and they said, oh, wait a minute, that's not the truth. That's an antichrist teaching. 
Those men left, they were antichrist because of what they were teaching. Not just because they left, but because of what they were teaching. So the result was that it would be shown to us for what they were. When the teaching came about and John heard about the teaching, he knew what they really were. These men who declared themselves to be apostles were not true apostles or even believers. John does not name the men who are the false teachers. He just calls them antichrists. Their names are of no importance to the first century believers or for believers today. What is taught that is false is what is important for believers to always understand. When someone is teaching what is false, the true believer is to identify that person as a false teacher. John's direct name is Antichrist. We don't really toss that word around in this day and age because I'm sure it's not politically correct, but... Maybe we should toss it around a little more. (laughs) This has been true throughout the church age. This is still true for us today. We should not treat this lightly under the cover of political correctness. When there is a false teaching, it should be identified as such. And remember, we identify the teaching as false. You do not attack a person. You identify the teaching as false. That's good enough. And many of us aren't even willing to do that. Don't like conflict. Don't really know that we would know what to say if somebody came up and asked why we thought something different. Know what you know. Know why you know what you know. Be willing to defend and be willing to stand up to false teaching. Verse 20. What is true for the believers, John is writing to He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. Who is the Holy One? Holy Spirit. This is not a secret anointing. Why? He says, y'all know. If we were in Texas, we'd say, y'all, y'all. Y'all, y'all know this. This is a refutation to point two of the Gnostic teaching that what? Only... Special men receive special revelation. John says, you all have the same anointing from the Holy Spirit. And you all have that same anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's why you can know truth. You don't need to wait around. Spirit's in you. He will let you know what the truth is if you seek it. In verse 21, what is the reason for John to write this letter? What is not a reason for John to write this letter? That was an important word I left out there. (laughs) He says, I have not written to you because you you didn't know the truth. He says, I am writing. Why? Because you do know it. Because no lie is of the truth. Verse 22, how can the believers clearly identify these false teachers? He says, who is the liar but the one who denies? Jesus is the Christ. It's pretty simple. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. That's how you know. A really simple test to know if you're dealing with somebody who's teaching truth or not is, what do they teach about that? Jesus is the Christ, the Father and the Son. They need to teach both. If either are missing, you need to shut it down. John continues this declaration of truth throughout this letter as we identified earlier that Indication is denying both the Father and the Son. They are eternally linked. You can't fellowship with one and not the other. 
This would be true for those that declare they have a relationship with God, but they don't know Jesus. Verse 23, the central tenet of false teachers is what? Whoever denies the son does not have the father. Pure and simple. Just go to that verse right there. If you deny the son, this is what you're doing. You don't know the father. You claim you do. You have a different definition of it. But the truth is, if you don't know the son, you can't possibly know the father. The true measure of a believer and a true teacher is the one who confesses the son and has the father also. So he teaches it from both. He says, this is what it's like not to, and this is what it is to. This is what it's not having a relationship. This is what Antichrist teaches. This is what a true believer would teach. So professing God only is not a profession of faith. Let me say that again. Professing God only is not a profession of Christian faith. One must be professing Jesus as Christ. If one doesn't profess Christ, the writer says they are liars and antichrist, and they are not teachers sent by God. All those people who are spiritual that we talked about in the question answered last week, they would fall there. You must profess Jesus to be a Christian. Verse 24, what does John say to the believers? He says, as for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. So what was the first thing the apostles would teach when they spoke to anybody? The gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. As one believes in the gospel of Jesus, what is true? If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the son and in the father. When a believer abides in the gospel of Jesus, the son, they also abide with the father. There is no second level to achieve fellowship with the father apart from what exists in the son. Do you see how there may have been some other teaching going on that there was another way to get to know the father? Jesus was just one way. There's other ways. If you have enough knowledge and you're able to read the signs and you're a special person, you could maybe get to know the father and not really need to go through Jesus, the son. False teaching. That's what John is saying. Do we have religions even now that say that they know the father, but it's not really through Jesus that you get there. And they have, most of them have hierarchies that only the people at the top really can have that special relationship because they know so much more. They've experienced something you haven't experienced. John makes it real simple. There's one way to know the father and it's through the son and that's it. And anything else that's declared is declared from an antichrist and they are unbelievers, period. Verse 25, what is true for the believer? This is the promise which he himself made to us. What is the promise? Eternal life. Is that like the best gift ever? How can you get a better gift? Relationship through Jesus Christ with the Father. Oh, and you get the added bonus of eternal life. Woohoo! That's the joy we should be filled with. If you've just gotten the best gift you could ever get in your entire life, wouldn't you just want to share that with everybody? This is the best thing ever. Let me tell you how I came about it. Right? That's what we need to be excited with and filled with joy when we share. 
So we'll see how 1 John chapter 2 ends. We're going to read verses 26 through 29. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So verse 26, John specifically defines why he is writing the letter again. How? These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. The things he just wrote, those are the things he's sending to them to warn them. He's telling them, this is why I'm letting you know this. This is why I'm being so dogmatic. This is why I'm repeating myself. This is why I say things in kind of the same way, but I reword it just a little bit. I really, really, really want you to see this. I don't want you to miss it at all. John is very specific that his harsh words are for those who are trying to deceive the believers. He is giving the believers clear and advanced warnings about the destructiveness of these men in the church. He was being strong then, and we need to take his words just as seriously now. It's not different now. Verse 27, what does John write as comfort to the believers? He says, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. Isn't that nice of John? He is harsh. And then he comes back and he goes, well, I want to encourage you though. So the anointing was received from who? The Holy Spirit is the one that is the anointing. The believer has received the Holy Spirit from whom? No, from God. And where does the Holy Spirit remain? It abides in you. So let's get it straight. The Father is the one that gives the gift. The Father is the one that we need to have fellowship with. The Holy Spirit is the outpouring and the anointing of that. None of that from Father to Holy Spirit is possible without Jesus. It's because of Jesus that we can have the abiding of the Holy Spirit. They're all equal in their importance. The Father is the one we established to have fellowship with through Jesus. That was all chapter one. But now John goes on to say, and you know that this has been accomplished, that you had faith in Jesus, that Jesus and God are one because you have the Holy Spirit. That's the confirmation that you know when the Holy Spirit abides in you. So what is not necessary for eternal life beyond the abiding of Holy Spirit? You don't need anybody else to teach you anything but that. That's all you need to know. That's all any believer needs to know. Oh, that's right. That's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. There is no level of higher knowledge to be achieved. Again, what is he dealing with? The teaching of the Gnostics, that somehow you can have a special or unique relationship with the Father if you attain some higher knowledge. And John is dispelling that over and over. He goes, nope, there is no other knowledge you need to have. You have all you need. You got the spirit. This is a confirmation of John's refutation to point to the false teaching 
that some would achieve higher levels of knowledge and needed to be sought out for that information or their special position before God. So let's really think about that. Because not only does the false teacher have the desire to let you know the special level that they've achieved, right? It gives them, they're a, little, they're a little higher than you are. You're down here and they're here. But the next thing they do is, and if you'd like to attain to a higher level, do they send you somewhere else to get that? You can get that through me. I'm here to help you achieve that higher level. There is always the underlying point of the false teacher. They have achieved something special in their relationship with God. And if you want what they have or what they can help you get from God, you got to go through them. They have special revelations from God that no one has ever had. They have special connections. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they have special connection to God's healing power, which you can only get if you go through them. They have a really special way to use your money. <laughs> they will, you will be blessed by God, right? Usually the more money, but often linked to the giving of money to open doors to other areas that God is just waiting to bless you in. But first, you got to be willing to part with your money. They have special words or prayers, often misquoted scriptures to unlock earthly provisions from God, like money or jobs or your peace of mind or special joy or confirmation that your sins have actually been forgiven, etc., etc., etc. The false teacher This is how you can identify it. The false teacher moves the object of faith from Jesus to the things of the world. Go back and read verse 15, what that means. So fill in the blank with things that I didn't even list there. If they move your faith from Jesus to anything else in the world, that's a false teacher. Your faith is in Jesus alone. In verse 27, believers have no need for others to teach them special knowledge. Why? Because he, that's right. But as his anointing teaches you all about all things, and it is true, and it is not a lie. And just as it has taught you abide in him. So who is his anointing? The Holy Spirit. What does his anointing do? teaches you about all things. The Holy Spirit is anointing that teaches us about all things. So it's in the anointing. The Holy Spirit is your guide, is your teacher. He will teach you all things. Verse 28, John reassures these believers how? He says, now little children, and I don't think that's done in any kind of a condescending way because he just talked about the fact that he's not higher than anybody else. He's doing it in a tender and loving way. Abide in him so that when he appears, We may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. When believers see Jesus again, which will be at his coming, John says that we may have confidence because we abide in him. We already abide in him because we have the spirit. John has used the term abide 10 times since verse six. He uses it a total of 23 times in this letter. 
When we have completed our study of this letter, we should have a clear understanding of what John means when he says we abide in him. We will review all of that later in our study. No sense in me taking you and hopping you all around all the places he uses abide now. We're going to wait until we've been through it. So we've studied it and then we'll go back and we'll do a review to get a picture of what abiding looks like. John refers to when he appears and at his coming. And both of these are clear references to what do we call that? The rapture, or the believer's resurrection, right? The dead go first. Those that are living will then join. This is often called the rapture in the church today, or it can be the believer's resurrection, depending on which way you refer to it. In verse 29, what is John's conclusion? It says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. What false teaching of the Gnostics, not the Gnostics is being dealt with here? That knowledge is superior to Virtue, virtue or character, exactly. Christ virtue and thus any virtue we can have only comes from truly knowing him. What does this mean as we've unpacked this for believers today? We have the same promises of having a genuine fellowship with God the Father, the creator of the universe. You can have fellowship with the creator of the universe. Just let that sink in. Your fellowship with the creator. Wish I had a bunch of fireworks to set off right now to celebrate that thought. Isn't that just amazing? Ah, oh, we have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. There's some internal fireworks that need to go off there. We have, this because we, we have this because we have received the forgiveness of sin because we have faith in Jesus Christ. We have the knowledge of God through his spirit that he gives us in his word. We have his word to go back to, to be reaffirmed every day about those promises that we have. We have the power to overcome sin in our life as we walk daily because we have the Holy Spirit, because we can have fellowship with God. We have the discernment to identify false teaching and walk away from it. We have the ability to love one another in the truest sense of the word. And remember, love isn't the warm, fuzzy feeling, although it can be. Love is doing something for someone else. Loving them. As, what, is, what does Jesus say? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Keep in mind that that already makes an assumption that you love yourself just fine. If you could love others with the love you already got for yourself, you'd be doing good. That's what he's saying. All of that is ours. That's the encouragement. As John is hammering away at these false teachers, he never stops coming back to remind the believers what they have. You don't need to be seeking from anybody else. You have the, you got the real meal deal already. Don't go seeking after anything else. You got the best. Why would you put that aside for anything else? That's what you walk out of here knowing. And you can set off your own fireworks. That's an amazing life that we have. 
What an amazing gift. If we keep that as our focus, what we know to be true, we have the best gift ever. We have eternal life. If we keep our eyes focused on that eternity, it changes our perspective on anything that can be thrown at us today or tomorrow, right? Everything pales in comparison to that. And that's what's promised in the scriptures.